Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. This is a podcast for clinical psychologists, but this episode is a little bit different from my usual format. Instead of interviewing a senior clinician about their area of expertise, today you're going to hear from three psychologists who are just starting out on their career path. I will introduce you to three people who are either undertaking the clinical registrar training program or who have only just finished. They will talk about their experiences in the master's program, why they decided to become endorsed, and they'll reveal some of the fears and expectations they had along the way. If you are a psychology student or just beginning your career journey, this will be especially relevant to you. Or if you're a clinical supervisor, you may be asked to supervise someone working towards endorsement. So what makes a good supervisor? I'll ask our guests what they found most helpful. Let's join the conversation. I'd like to welcome our three guests to the podcast, Brianna, Youngblood and Patrick, who've either recently finished their clinical registrar training or who are in the process of undertaking it. Welcome to Clinically Thinking. Thank you. Brianna, tell us your journey. Thank you. Happily. Um, Thank you for having me as well. I studied psychology, um, did all of my undergraduate honours and master's training at the Uni of Adelaide. I graduated from a master of clinical psych in 2018 and I've been working since then at the chronic pain unit at Flinders Hospital and also dabbling a little bit in private practice as well more recently. I'm about six weeks away from finishing my clinical endorsement program. I'm hanging out for that. Um, And on the side, I also do some volunteering with the APS Clinical College as well. So it keeps me busy. Sounds like it will keep you very busy. (laughs) Youngbai, what's your your story? Um, I think my psychology story starts before I started studying psychology formally, having taught yoga for 20 odd years that was really the foundation for my interest in going from I guess more of a physical uh, engagement in therapy to uh, a a talking therapy I I wanted to expand on on the tools I already had and since a lot of the students coming to me would want to talk as well as move it started to seem clear to me that I needed more training to be able to do that uh, so that I wasn't just offering advice from life experience, but I could actually um, come from a a clinical perspective with the right training and the the right understanding of what an evidence base looks like. So that led me then to explore what the possibilities were. I came into it fairly late in life, so I'd already had a, a whole other career beforehand. Um, to find out if it was even a possibility. And that quickly turned into enrolling at University of Adelaide, doing my undergrad there um, as a grad dip, just to to knock it out. And then through honours there and then going on to UniSA to do my my master's. And then being snapped up very quickly uh, after that to work in private practice, which is where I'd wanted to be since I started. Yeah. Great. We'll look forward to coming back to hearing more of both your stories. Patrick, what's your story? Yes, so not as exotic as young bloods through the teaching of yoga, but it's hard to compete. With yeah, that, really, exactly. <laughs> um, but like Brianna, I did all my studies at the University of Adelaide, my Bachelor of Psychological Science, then my honours following that, 
and then finished my Master of Clinical Psychology there in November last year. So I'm the greenest of the groups today. Um, but yeah, much like young blog, I think I was drawn to psychology through a passion for the science of it and also just a personal interest in kind of the extremes of human emotion as well. And uh, yeah, just started work uh, in the public sector at Northern Community Mental Health and at Wandaka Community Rehabilitation Centre as so well. So I have inadvertently chosen well, three people all who have studied at least some of their studies at Adelaide University. And for the listeners, that was definitely not intentional. So I'm just, <laughs> let that be said, but I am glad to have you all here. Um, can I just ask why clinical? I mean, I know that there is a paucity of other courses, but were you particularly drawn to clinical psychology? Because I imagine some of our listeners will be students considering whether they should um, seek a five plus one or look for a master's in clinical or other pathways. Was there a particular reason you guys chose um, clinical? Can I start with you, Youngblood? Uh, yeah, I, I, there was definitely a point um, where I had a lot of advice that perhaps because of my skill set, my background, that health psychology might be the better choice. But I, I think from the very beginning, I wanted to do clinical. It, to me, held um, a stronger interest in varying my understanding of what was going on. I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of health psychology from the yoga not to say, of course, that that's the equivalent of doing a program in, in a master's in health psychology, but also knowing that there was there, there were only a few units difference. I thought if I ever did want to bridge, then I'd like to bridge from clinical to, to health rather than the other way around. The, the course undergrad was so interesting that at one point I thought I might want to do organizational psychology, but I thought I have to pick something that I actually want to do, not just something I'm really passionate about. And and clinical psychology I'm both passionate about and I really wanted to also do it okay it felt like a nice um a good fit a good fit and a nice parallel to what I was doing without too much overlap with enough with the yoga that the is yoga, yeah. I felt like health was too much overlap for me so it stretched you a bit more if you like maybe excuse the pun oh, but absolutely oh, yes it did un- unintentional okay <laughs> it did it stretched me I liked okay. I liked the challenge of it yeah <laughs> great uh, Brianna, what about you? What's your story around that? Why clinical? I'm still laughing at that oh, yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I can some of some of my reasoning echoes with with young bloods, uh, not knowing where my passion in inverted commas lay at the very beginning, and not knowing what area I might want to specialise in moving forward. I um, clinical to me seemed like the the best or the most effective and productive training ground to build some really good foundations about human behaviour, which would then, I suppose, open up many opportunities in terms of job settings and different work settings uh, and also, again, like I said, provide that foundation if I wanted to then move more into the health space or maybe the forensic space yep. um, as so options. What about, as you? Options, yeah. what about you, Patrick? What are your thoughts? Did you choose clinical specifically or did it choose you because there was no other alternative? <laughs> um, I think I admitted a really important part of my journey when I introduced myself actually in that uh, in between honours and my masters, I partially completed a four plus two as well in a clinical psychology setting. Um, I suppose that going back to undergrad and early experiences with psychology, I tended to think that clinical psychology was where this all ended up, no matter what. I kind of had a very narrow perspective on psychology. But then, of course, you do your undergrad, you 
understanding, you know, expands. And I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do necessarily. Clinical psychology still seemed like the best fit. It was the thing I wanted to do all throughout high school, really. Um, but then I was really lucky at the end of my honours while still unsure about how I'd apply what I'd learned early on um, by getting that four plus two position uh, in a clinical psychology practice and just loving the work I was doing every day, which I think is always the best indication of whether it's suited to you, was that it was inherently reinforcing. And the days where I was seeing clients and doing real clinical work, I was going home feeling more refreshed than when I came in. Why, having done the four plus two, would you then go into clinical, uh, you're not working in private practice, so it's not about Medicare? And sometimes, you know, you think, is it just all about the money? Because that's where Medicare is at the moment. And so you think people are choosing clinical because of the apparent financial um, gains. But what's your story around that, just briefly? Oh, yeah, well, just briefly, I did about 12 months of the 4 plus 2, and I felt like I really needed to solidify the things I was practicing and reinforce whether what I was doing was the right thing to do and expand my learning as well. I mean, when you're in the 4 plus 2, you can do as much CPD as you'd like, but you can't get the kind of, I suppose, the broad base of education that a master's can provide as well as the three placements as well, which we'll get to. I really wanted to expand my experience and my understanding of the field, and I think without getting too deeply into the 4 plus 2, as you said, I think that it can kind of limit uh, the things you understand and the things you practised. Mm. If I can draw out just a yeah. little bit more <laughs> yeah, there. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay, yeah. it's good. It seems to me that um, formulation, for example, is something yeah. that is, can be... Uh, it's absolutely basic for clinicites, but I'm wondering how that's covered, in your experience anyway, in a 4 plus 2, you know, yeah. Or whether there's other things that you're thinking of that were harder to cover in that kind of um, a training model. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, within the 4 plus 2, I suppose, it really all depends on your supervisor, where you're working, yeah. and the kinds of things you're exposed to, really. And that's partially why I wanted to go to Masters in that it would expose me to so many more things. I suppose that during my 4 plus 2, I was exposed to a sliver of clinical practice that did include formulation, uh, but it certainly was... What some of the things I was doing in those 12 months were kind of addressing certain populations and certain presentations um, that didn't provide the broader coverage that the Masters does. Hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Have I covered your one? Yeah, young blood. I just, uh, people told me, you know, you've always got four plus two as an option. And I think the reason I did, the reason I didn't want to do it is because I didn't want to have to do all of that organizing on top of the actual study. I, I wanted someone to just... Lazy, basically, are you? I, well, kind of, yeah, but also a sense okay. of reassurance that I was getting everything that someone thought I should get. Right. And then if I wanted to do anything on top of that, great, I could do that. But mm-hmm. now I, I know what the program entails as opposed to doing a four plus two and then wondering what didn't I get, mm-hmm. you know? And even in the retelling, if someone were to try to give me a play-by-play on what they did in the master's program, I would still wonder, have they missed something? Have I missed something? What don't I know? So you're thinking that the, the master's program uh, was independently verified, if you'd like, and someone else had worked out the units that you needed to cover in order to be competent in this particular yeah. t- this yeah. particular field of psychology, if you like. Yeah, okay. and I've done that in every training I've ever done, is I've relied on the expertise of the people who have gone before me to say, this is what we think you should know, and yes. then I can trust that. Yeah, I do it feel that way. standardised in that absolutely. sense across different yeah. programs. Absolutely, yeah. and that's not to say that my 4 plus 2 supervisor and workplace weren't tremendously supportive and helpful in that way, but they also encouraged that I do what Youngblood was saying and, you know, kind of appeal to the expertise of the mm-hmm. master's program and APAC accreditation, you know, for that course as well. 
So let's move on to talk about your various pathways. You've all got uh, through your endorsement, um, thinking from the perspective of maybe a fourth year or third year student in psychology, right? Just keep that in the back of your mind and yeah, see what you think they might like to um, might like to hear as they're working out what they might want to do. So Patrick, are you happy to well, lead yeah. the way? How yeah. long have you been in your current job? Uh, so only a few months now. I started in January. So ah, I, very new. Yeah, exciting. So, yeah, it is, it is tremendously exciting. I think going back to third or fourth year um, psychology, I mean, it was an incredibly anxious time for me and I think that's reported by many people who are at that stage in their undergrad or their honours is that there are all these expectations around getting certain grades as a mean of getting to the next part of the sort of bottleneck of getting into masters. And it's very stressful. And I very think you, you spend so much time uh, worrying about numbers and your weighted average mark. I think I had a, a very meticulous spreadsheet that would let me know where I sat at any given day um, that I refreshed too many times, <laughs> even though it was never going to change. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what I suppose I'd say to third or fourth year students was that, you know, your time will come and you can, you know, you'll do as best as you can in the undergrad and the honours. The fact that you're even considering uh, pursuing that master's course means that you're pretty serious about your studies regardless of how you feel they're going at the time. And I I certainly wasn't confident that I was going to get into master's whatsoever in third or fourth year. I think that, um, you know, my grades were how they were at the end of them. And I think that the thing I'd encourage everyone to remember is that they'll stay the same, but your experience can only get better. Mm. Um, so go out and volunteer, get whatever work you can in a space vaguely related to clinical psychology if that's what you want to pursue and you'll just keep growing from there and strengthen that master's application as mm. time goes on. Yeah, mm. very much the case. Brianna? Absolutely. Um, I think similarly third and fourth year is, um, you know, we can get a little bit uh, tunnel vision I think in that there's only one way to to reach um, the, the clinical psych masters if that's the way that someone's wanting to head but um, looking back and learning about, you know, the different avenues that people can get there, I think um, it would have been very comforting uh, to anyone to to just know that that there's, you know, there are, well, I believe there are still bridging programs. Oh, the bridging or, programs will increase. You know, th yes. that's the models right. of the models of the pathways will get more as more the, flexible as the demands for clinical psychology increase. There's going to be more and more pathways to get there. So. Um, you know, if we if you have to take the scenic route, then then it's a journey. And I think more, and I think in this field, experience is really valuable as well. And the scenic route is always the most interesting. That's why it's yeah. called the scenic route, right? So it doesn't uh, in the as long as you get your training, it doesn't matter. But you guys, we're focusing here particularly on AAP kind of supervisory experience and what you've had and what you're having and how that's been for you. So. Um, uh, I'm interested in young boy. What about you? Where, what's your experience? I, I think I kind of wanted to, if I could, I don't know if this is now backtracking. but I, Backtrack away. Well, as far as the cynic route goes, the, the thing that they kept telling us in third and fourth year was keep in mind how competitive this is and how you may not get in on your first try. Mm. And so whatever you do, if you don't get in, do something useful with that year. Right. You were saying, Patrick, about getting as much experience as possible. And I don't think that maybe some maybe for some people it landed, but I think for some people they were just still so focused on the numbers that they thought, yeah, 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 yeah. 
But the problem is it's like, you know, putting your deposit in a bank account. The earlier you do it, the more interest you're going to get out of it, right? And you can't wait until you're 65 to start that investment account. And so the earlier people start doing this stuff, the more it's just part of what they're already doing. And third and fourth year is not too late. End of fourth year is an afterthought. And then, okay, if you don't get in, you've got that year, but do something with that year. Don't assume that that is a, a failed year. The, some of the people I've talked to who went back then the following year and got in had amazing years and had amazing experiences and got so much clinical experience that they were well ahead of the curve when they went back and said, I never thought I could be so pre-qualified for a program and feel so confident about applying for it. And so they were able to just sit in the interview and, and answer questions easily because it was what they were already doing yes, every day. Yeah. And Very I think that's so important. And it was driven home, I think, at least for me, in honors when the person who came second the year before me came back to give us the chat and everybody went, where's the girl who came first? And she said, oh, she didn't, she didn't get in. Mm -hmm. We all thought, what? And she said, yeah, she watched the interview. We're like, oh, there's more to it than just the scores. And that's when it landed is that there's more to it than just how good are your grades. And getting the top, top grades doesn't necessarily mean that you are cut out for what we're doing. But it's interesting, if I may say, um, how many people start their, um, their psychology practice, you know, like getting jobs in the field, how early they start them, sometimes not starting to a fourth year, but... You know, I know that a lot of students start in second year, they get mm -hmm. jobs or they're volunteering at Lifeline or they get a job in the field in admin or all kinds of things to improve their chances of getting ahead of the pack. Yeah. Is that how it seems to you? That's how it goes? That was certainly, I think, a message that we received um, explicitly and implicitly, I believe, in terms of, um, you know, the, the more I can have on my resume, the greater the chance I'll have of, of making it. Equally, though, I think it's a valid, it's a very valid recommendation, too, in that we get to, you can start, it's like a soft test into do I actually like this field and, oh, and um, you know, what, what do I like, what don't I like about it, can I see, actually see myself in here doing yeah. this type of thing. So I think that experience is, is mm -hmm. certainly very helpful mm -hmm. and uh, and you think it, I think it's very important. Yeah, it? yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think you come back to to answer that question and come back to Yumbo's point about interviews and talking about your experience. I think that I, you know, I finished my honours year. I got an interview, but I didn't make it into masters. Went away, did that four plus two, and then did the interview again. The big difference I noted between the first interview and the second one was in the first one, I was answering everything in the abstract. I was, you know, they'd say, "What would you do if you know a client said you had." food between your teeth or whatever question they were asking and you'd say oh here's what I think I'd do if I were presented with that um, but it's fascinating that once you've accumulated enough experience you can say well here are examples of how I've dealt with something like that. All right so let's um, uh, talk about your supervisory experiences and remember that this is they may be listening, <laughs> so <laughs> they may be listening. So, no, but hopefully they'll be all fabulous. So, I'd really like to hear about your supervisory experiences because they'll be so varied, um, and the things that have worked, the things that haven't worked, and then whatever you, whatever floats your boat you want to talk about. Young blood, I can start. I 
very much enjoyed my supervisor experience. Uh, are you talking about as part of the uh, as part of the endorsement I am program? I'm talking about yeah. as part of that process. Yeah. yeah, that program. What I liked was the the opportunity to keep checking in and have to have an 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 open invitation to ask questions and to not have to worry about doubts, because I think beyond feeling new at something, it can be even harder if you feel like you're bothering someone. And at least for me, yeah, right. you know, oh, I, maybe I should know this and I just shouldn't be asking. I should know oh, this yeah, already. Right, yeah. Whereas the, having the routine of being able to come in and say, can we talk about this? And I'll see you at, on Thursday at three and, and so on m meant that uh, that was already in my head as I was going through whatever it was I was doing with a client as I would think note to self, this is something I'm going to ask about as soon as I have the opportunity to. And so it's, it's scaffolded my, my interest and my, my, my sense of reflection, I think self-reflection as I was going through the actual um, process of learning to find my feet and my way as a therapist. I think, what, what do they say? Um, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And so understanding how another clinician and a very experienced clinician would handle something and then being able to balance that against either what my instinct was or what my training told me, I think gave me uh, a good sense of whether I was on the on the right mark mm -hmm. or whether I needed to go back and do extra study on something mm -hmm. or even just to have a simple recommendation. This is what I've been thinking about. Do you have a, a book or a, an article or something that you would recommend? Mm -hmm. Oh, as a matter of fact, I do. And so going going through that as a more formalized, ongoing conversation, I think, felt very safe to me. I felt taken care of. Well, that's what sounds like that's really important. Uh, do you think that there needs to be kind of a matching between the you know the the supervisee and the supervisor's style, if Absolutely. you like, in, uh, in in sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. In what? No, in, a, in well, in finding the it's a relationship, isn't yes, it? At least partly, you know, there's sort yeah. of partly relationship, partly mentor, partly supervisor. Sometimes wear different hats. A line manager, maybe in some places, and you've got to swap hats. I think that's when it. Well, okay. I mean, I can only go on my own experience. I have a, a very strong connection with my supervisor and feel that our understanding of one another, not just as clinicians but as humans, is very strong. And so I don't, um, I don't feel at any. I, I've never felt a clash before, and so that comfort that I have felt, I think, was extremely useful because it it sort of uh, created that platform of of any question is open. There's no stupid questions. You know, I didn't need to feel dumb for not knowing something, and I think that was partly because of. Well, I think that was in big part because my supervisor was so uh, inviting. Mm. Come, let's talk, let's talk, and interested as well. Oh, tell me more, tell me more. I mean, it, it wasn't therapy, but it, it had a, a sense of that relationship, as you said, yeah, that connection. The therapeutic edge Absolutely. To, the, to the work. That sounds like you had a good supervisor and a good Great experience. Yeah. yeah, and I know that you've had um, from previous conversations, you've had a couple of you know difficult experiences early on in your career, and so that you know you'd really want to have that with in terms of you know difficult clients and mm. tricky things happening, mm. and that would be be very important to have that supportive um, 
as well as collegiate and training and teaching and you know relationship. I'm wondering, or we'll come back to weaknesses in the supervisor experience, but I'm wondering also, um, having been really competent at something for a long time with the yoga, I wondered about how it would be to kind of start again almost and be the student. Uh, do, you know what I, do you know what I mean? Yes, or it was the, wonderful. It was wonderful? Yes. Okay, yes. I didn't expect that. So tell me about that. Uh, so one of the things that I've found through teaching yoga is that um, students want to get there too soon. And I've, I've had students on their first day say, how many classes do I need to take before I can be a teacher? Right. And I'm like, slow down. Wrong you question. need to be a student before you can be a teacher. Right. Do you offer teacher training? I said, no, we offer student training. <laughs> And then maybe one day we can have a discussion about you being. So they want to get, they want to put the the, the uh, cart before the horse, and it ends up being this this kind of race, and they miss all of the learning opportunities. So I mean, whether it's here or as in psychology work or yoga, whatever their um, proclivity is towards an extreme, I feel like my job is to bring them back to a balanced center. If they're sluggish, if they're tamasic, if they're slow, it's my job to speed them up a bit and get them motivated and working. If they're rajasic, meaning that they're pushing too hard and they're go, 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 I got to pull oh, that was, back. Oh, that, that was yoga This term. is yoga jargon. I thought, oh my goodness, I don't know those words. <laughs> Where's these my dictionary? These are the latest psychology <laughs> terms. You don't know no, these I don't terms. know these oh, ones. Oh my goodness. So it's trying to bring them back, and I'm going to use one more, into this sattvic place. And sattvic is this kind, gentle, soft, supportive, pure uh, place of openness and, and having that beginner's mind. So it sounds like you're well-trained in that openness and you would it is part of the bring practice. that, yeah, would yeah, yeah. bring that to So be... any chance I get, I'm, I'm cutting you off, you go ahead. No, no, it's all good, I'm cutting you off perhaps, we're cutting each other off, it's a speciality of mine. Um, <laughs> any, any any weaknesses, I hate that word, strengths and weaknesses are a better word, but you know, anything you would have wanted better that you, you would recommend to other supervisors or supervisees to look for? Oh gosh, um... I mean, I feel like this is, you know, at the end of the uh, at the end of the conference when they say anything we could have done better, you know. There always is, isn't there? Well, there always is, but sometimes you, I like to be able to truthfully write more of the same, please, yeah, yeah. and that's it. I, I suppose I would I would hope that everyone could have that, and I, I'm sure I mean, statistically it's going to be impossible for everyone to have an awesome experience. But I would really love for supervisors to recognize the. Um, the opportunity that's there for them to share their knowledge openly so that because I don't think it was it was me who was I mean it was partly me but it was it, it would not have been possible to have such an open experience had it not been for the supervisor helping me to feel that not knowing something was not okay? a deficit right, right. yeah so you know how many clients we see who have imposter syndrome it, it would be it, it is it would be nice for a supervisor to recognize the likelihood that your supervisee is experiencing imposter syndrome and to treat them accordingly so that they that you so that you are in some ways you use the word mentor i think is good you're you're somewhat parenting reparenting and i think it's an opportunity to to give them through that supervisory role um some of the experience that you would hope they could then give to their mm. clients yeah it sounds like it's a, a, a important for supervisors to understand these things and to, to really validate their supervisees' experience. What do you, what are you, what's your experience been you two? Yeah, well, I suppose I was going to say that a huge strength of certain supervisors I've had, and certainly the supervisor I currently have in the Red Stripe program, is that they are very, very 
open about when there are gaps in their knowledge or certain things that they're unsure about and despite their own vulnerability. So vulnerability is a yeah, way it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a, it, it was such a game changer for me when a supervisor at some point in my master's talked about their own supervision and their own sense of insecurity about certain elements of their practice. And it seems so strange now that this would be surprising to me, but it was like, oh my God, I, you know, I will never know everything. So it's okay to be curious and open about gaps in my knowledge and my practice. That's fine. Um, mm. And it meant that the next session I came in and I spoke about all these things I was very, very unsure about and I didn't feel as daunted about it. So it invited the vulnerability Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we all know that in our personal relationships when someone else is vulnerable, it gives us license to be ourselves. So mm. I think it's a, a huge strength when supervisors talk about you know, their own supervision as mm. well. Brianna, what's your experience been? I'm just listening and reflecting on what you're both saying and I'm just picturing supervision as a safe base. Um, mm. where we are, we're support, well, you know, in, in an ideal world, and this has been my experience as well, um, you know, we are, we're nurtured, we're given some knowledge, and, and it's about building our confidence up that we can then take a few steps forward and try something out and then all come back and, oh, that, this went well, this really didn't go well, um, but talk and debrief about that and then, okay, take a few steps forward again and let's try that out again. So it's this, um, you know, it's it's really, for me, supervision is building about building my sense of self-efficacy mm. as a professional and, um, and I think uh, what I found really helpful was that, a lot of my supervision with my supervisor was very process-based. Um, so rather than focusing on techniques and, and strategies, it was really about, well, what pushes my buttons in, in therapy and why did I react like that when, this, when, when that client said this and, um, and really learning about my role as a human in the room and learning to use that to, to help the therapeutic relationship. Um, and I found that um, equally confronting and daunting, but but meaningful and rich as well um, in terms of developing my skills in the room. And so there's no other time like the endorsement program where we're going to get someone looking over us and someone caring for us in that way. So um, use it. And, and like you said, Patrick, when, you know, the more vulnerable you can be in the room, I think the more you're going to get out of it as well. So, and it's really about building that, you know, feeling safe emotionally to express when you've got no bloody clue. Well, um, <laughs> when, yeah, when you don't know, it's it's so important to feel safe with your supervisor to share that. And it kind of, I think, with the whole imposter syndrome, we there's that tendency to want to hide that. Let's hide when. I stuffed up or let's hide when I made a certain mistake in the room. But I think if you can share that, it can actually minimise that sense of, oh, people, uh, they're, 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 it's a matter of time until they find out. So yes, <laughs> it can yes. actually minimise that sense of, well, I'm alone in this and I'm the imposter. Um, I think one of the errors I made early on in supervision was I felt like I had to somewhat market myself as competent in some ways. I had to you know, present certain cases in a way that made me look really great. And uh, I learned pretty quickly that that's not necessarily what it's there for. You know, I think that the way you disclose insecurities or weaknesses is a way of demonstrating really, ref really great reflection and also competence as well. Mm. I think reflecting on things you haven't done well indicates that you kind of are starting to know what you're doing. So, mm. yeah. 
It reminds me of, and sometimes, and this is again, I think part of the job. I'm gonna make another yoga reference here, if that's okay. Um, sometimes a student will want to do the, the the postures that they know. They want to just do a practice. Oh, the ones they're good at. The ones they're good at. Yeah. Oh boy, and that's the thing for me. Is it? Yeah, uh, yoga. They want to do that swan thing. Right. I'm terrible at that. And, well, and that's I think again, my body's part, terrible at it. Partly the job is to be able to say to them. That's wonderful, and I, I like that you know that you're you know yourself well enough that you're able to do that. Let's work on something that you're not quite able to do yet, and put your energy into that. Otherwise, you're going to continue to be good at the things you're good at, and not good at the things that you're not good at. I know it sounds very basic, but it is, you know, in our nature. I think sometimes to just want to be stroked for the things we already know instead of poked and and told, "Hey, here's a here's a gap." Go into the you know, outside of on. the comfort zone. Yeah, mm. that's where the growth happens. If you were going to start all again, what would you have wished you'd known? Brianna? I would definitely tell my early registrar program self, self yes. to slow down. <laughs> At the beginning, there was such a sense of, I need to know, I need to know this, I need to know this theory, I need to know schema therapy, I need to know DBT, I need to know emotion-focused therapy. And that led me into a frenzy of reading multiple textbooks and trying just to know everything to build a false sense of competency and knowledge. Um, and in hindsight, I think that really worked against me in terms of burnout and feeling like I actually only knew little bits about a lot of things. Uh, and then when I changed, I then started to change my my strategy, which then became more so, well, just know a few approaches really well and learn how to apply those in multiple ways and with multiple people and really learn about the art of therapy so that you can take one skill and apply it differently when required. Um, and I think that helped to build that sense of uh, I kind of know what I'm doing mm -hmm. at least in this approach um, and and I think I I, uh, I think that worked better in the room as well when I just stuck to a few things and um, and just focus more on the the micro counseling skills as well so I think that went a long way. So telling your your earlier self, slow down. And <laughs> you don't need to. There's plenty of time. Yeah, you don't need to know everything. Do you think there's a pressure on young grads, clinical grads, to know it all, or is that just a Brianna thing? I think I've heard it before with <laughs> other clinicians, so I don't think it's just a Brianna. I think thing, it's but. an excitement thing as well, where you, there are so many techniques and approaches that sound so exciting and, and you know, research is developing for all of these different things that, um, you know, beloved CBT can get a bad rep sometimes yeah. when all of these other approaches are developing. But, but if we, if, you know, if you can kind of stick to that, it, it can work in a lot of ways when you add the art of therapy when you integrate Absolutely. the art of therapy and with not CBT. CBT no. Because we know that it works, you know, very well, great evidence yeah. base for it. It, it. it seems a little me, a little bit to me like, expanding on your metaphor that um, uh, maybe even works with the yoga thing, that um, if you're learning to play an instrument, for example, so you could do far worse than learning all the classical scales and, you know, and, and, and repertoire. And then from there, with that great foundation, you can continue to play classical forever. Then or you could learn to play jazz or play chords or yeah. whatever you want. So it's, 
you know, yeah. fantastic to have the micro skills and that CBT basis that you taught at university yeah. and then you expand. Can I just also add that I think these days, and I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are, because um, I trained a long time ago, but these days there is a lot of pressure, it seems to me, to get these added competencies and certification in DBT or certification in schema therapy or certification in compassion focused therapy, and I could go on and on, um, and that you don't really feel necessarily like you're sufficiently trained unless you've got those additional um, certificates. Do you feel that's a pressure or a thing, or is it just in my head? Oh, no, I think that's right. I think that, yeah, there is a lot of pressure to diversify our practice, and I think that's a really nice instinct. Um, but I think that, you know, it's really interesting how often you go to, you know, the nice guidelines, um, you know, for whatever disorder you're seeing and how frequently it says, do CBT, don't overthink it. Um, so, yeah, it is fascinating how much we do feel the need to diversify, but sometimes the evidence base doesn't necessarily back us up in certain ways. I think that, you know, diversifying your practice is an excellent instinct. Um, but yeah, we can feel that pressure maybe a bit too much. Mm. I, I, th I find myself wanting to, you know, you asked the question, what would I tell myself? Yeah, at the start, um, often just offering information. I think we must all know this from, from therapy, but offering information is one thing, but allowing or helping a person to have a reflect on a, a previous lived experience of something so that they know they've already had that experience can bring about a sense of calm. And so this is my attempt now to do that for anyone who's listening who thinks, uh, but I don't, I'm not sure how to connect to that. If you, whatever year you are in, or let me put it this way, whatever year you have just completed. So if your third year, your end of your third year, you know, you're about to start fourth year, whatever, think back to the beginning of that year and how nervous you were about how all of the stuff there was that you were going to have to learn that year. And now think from the end of the year that you know all that stuff and it all seems very straightforward now. That's what the endorsement program feels like. You've done this already. First year, first class, you sat down Psych 101 and thought to yourself, oh my God, there's so much to learn. And the first year, you knew that. And the second year, you knew that. And the body just builds. Body and builds, and yeah. the, the endorsement is exactly the same. That's, I think, why it works so well. It's a system we already know. It's, it seems to me in, um, that you're all so well-trained these days as a, as a person who actually hires clinic, um, uh, uh, staff, registrars looking for employment opportunities. You know, I just see how well the, um, the profession is training you. So it's, it's very exciting, very exciting times. Is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I want to add one thing. If, if for whatever reason, and I don't know why, but I've had someone ask me this question, a couple of people asked me this question before, is it worth doing the program? Mm. I, I, it's an odd question to me. You're doing the work anyway. You're already doing the work, as in you're doing the therapy. So I don't see why you wouldn't do it. It seems odd to me not to do it. I need to get asked that. Yeah, I've been asked that before. Well, is it is it really worth it? And I just think, is it what is it worth it to write down what you're already doing and keep a record of how you're growing as a therapist? Yes, that's definitely worth it. Do you also happen to get an endorsement at the end of it? Yes, also you get that as well. Why wouldn't you do that? I think there's a um, again potentially for people who aren't who aren't um, in the registrar program yet. There's a sense of well, it's extra work. But exactly like you said, 
it, it happens quite incidentally. It Most does. of it does. It does. Um, and and so it's already embedded into our everyday work yes. and, anyway. Yes, and, the, and the, yeah. the, the extra, if it is even extra, as I say, of, of that is self-reflection. That's not hard. Which is great. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> Which is yes. important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, I think, you know, the requirements are, you know, certain amount of supervision. Why wouldn't you want that? Right. Extra learning. Why wouldn't you want this, mm. this stage in your career? Mm. I'd like just based really on my employer and how wonderful they've been in terms of how much CPD I've accumulated um, so far. I'm well exceeded my quotas, but I still feel so far behind in terms of my knowledge, you know. So why wouldn't I want to meet those mm. quotas as they are, you know. At that point, let me put in a shameless plug for the new um, APS Clinical um, College registrar, dedicated registrar logging system, which is very, very soon to be launched. Um, I have to say, I've had a big part in that, so I'm super excited. I think, Brownie, you've been involved in that, haven't you, over the years? A so, little bit. A little bit, just a little bit. So, that I would have liked the start yes, of the program. It's coming everyone's way, and so it'll be embedded in the current system, so it'll be all automated, which will be very exciting. So on that note, uh, Brianna, Patrick, young blood, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. If you have enjoyed Clinically Thinking, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a positive review of the show on Apple Podcasts or simply click lots of stars if you can't think of anything to say. Good reviews really do help us get found by a wider audience. We suggest you also follow the Clinically Thinking Facebook page where you can ask questions, interact with other listeners and find out when new episodes are on the way. I'm Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening.